Just a quick update before today's episode. In a nutshell, we're offering free access to our attachment theory and psychotherapy online course, which normally costs £99 in exchange to those who leave a review on our podcast. The course is run by Professor Jeremy Holmes, one of the world's leading experts in how attachment theory can be applied to improve therapeutic practice. And just so you know I'm not making this up, Peter Fonagy has described Professor Holmes' latest book as one of the most valuable contributions to the field in this century. Normally this course costs £99, but you can get it for free by simply leaving a review of this podcast on the platform you use, whether that's iTunes, Stitcher or Spotify. Then simply email us on support at theweekenduniversity.com and we'll grant you free access to the course. Reviews make a huge difference in helping us get the ideas shared by our speakers out to a wider audience. So not only will you be getting a £99 course free of charge, you'll also be helping a greater number of people improve their quality of life. Thanks for your continued support of the project, and I hope you enjoy today's show. Dr. Goff is a best-selling author and associate professor of philosophy at Durham University. The main focus of, of his research is on consciousness, but he's also interested in many questions about the nature of reality. Dr. Goff is most known for his work on panpsychism, the view that consciousness is a fundamental and ubiquitous feature of the physical world. He's the author of two books, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality and Ga- Galileo's Error, Foundations of a New Science of Consciousness, which he'll be speaking on today. So Dr. Goff is currently working on a book exploring the middle ground between God and atheism, he has published 45 scientific papers, as well as writing extensively for newspapers and magazines, including Scientific American, The Guardian, Eon, and Times Liter- Literary Supplement. You can learn more about his work at philipgoffphilosophy.com and follow him on Twitter at philip underscore goff. So that's us now. Are you ready? Brilliant. Thank you very much, Niall. Thanks for inviting me. It's great to be able to be talking to you about these very interesting issues. and. Um, Interested to hear your thoughts. Okay. If a tree falls in a forest and there's nobody there to hear it, does it make a sound? It's an age-old philosophical question, you might think. But in fact, this question was given a decisive answer in the 17th century by the father of modern science, Galileo. And that's where I'd like to start today. So a key moment in the scientific revolution was Galileo's declaration that mathematics was to be the language of the new science. From that point on, science was to have a purely mathematical quantitative vocabulary. But Galileo appreciated, uh, although this is a much discussed moment, what's actually less focused on is the philosophical work that Galileo had to do to make sense of this. And that's because before Galileo, following Aristotle, people... A key mo- I'll just go back maybe a line or two. A key moment in the scientific revolution was Galileo's declaration that mathematics was to be the language of the new science, that science from this point onwards... Oh, that's better, I can hear myself now is going to have this purely mathematical quantitative vocabulary. But what we don't discuss so much 
is the philosophical work Galileo had to do to make sense of this. And that's because before Galileo, people assumed quite naturally that the physical world was filled with qualities. So there were colors on the surfaces of objects, smells floating through the air, tastes actually located inside food. I mean, this is the, world, the way the world appears to us, and people naturally took it to be that way. But the trouble for Galileo, wanting science to be purely mathematical, is that you can't capture these kinds of qualities in the purely quantitative language of physical science. You, an equation can't capture that deep red you experience as you watch the setting sun. So this is a problem for Galileo. He wants to exhaustively describe the physical world in purely quantitative mathematical language. But what do we do with these qualities if you can't capture those, these qualities in that way? So Galileo got around this by proposing a radically new philosophical theory of reality. We think of Galileo as a great experimental scientist, which of course he was, but he was also a great philosopher. And he formulated a new philosophical worldview for this new scientific project. And in that philosophical worldview, the qualities we encounter in our experience aren't really out there in the physical world, rather they are in the consciousness of the observer, right? So the, the blueness that looks like it's on the surface of this table for Galileo isn't really out there on the surface of the table, it's in the consciousness of each person looking at the table. Or the bitter taste of the coffee I have here to wake me up, isn't really located inside the coffee. Rather, it's in the consciousness of the person drinking it. So Galileo strips the physical world of these qualities. And after he's done that, all that remains are the purely quantitative features of matter, size, shape, location, motion. Conveniently, properties we can capture in mathematics, right? So Galileo, in Galileo's worldview, there's this radical division in nature between these two domains. The quantitative domain of science, the physical world with its purely quantitative properties, size, shape, location, motion, properties you can capture in mathematics, and the qualitative domain of consciousness, consciousness with these qualities, colors, sounds, smells, tastes. Uh, and so to answer the age-old philosophical question, if a tree falls in the forest, there's no one there to hear it. For Galileo, there are kind of vibrations in the air, but no observer, no consciousness, no sound. So this is the start of mathematical physics, which has gone really well. Uh, produced extraordinary technology and yielded great insights. But what I think we've, a lot, many people have forgotten is that this whole project was premised on this dividing up in na of nature, premised on this division in nature that put consciousness outside of the domain of science.
And I think this has profound implications for the area I work in, namely the philosophy and science of consciousness. So we're going to circle back to Galileo in a few slides. Uh, so it's just starting off with definitions. I think good, good philosophy starts with the meaning of how we define words. Hopefully it doesn't end with what words mean, but it's a good place to start so we know what we're talking about. Especially since consciousness is a, is a bit of an ambiguous word. A lot of people use it to mean something quite sophisticated like awareness of your own existence, I find when I'm talking to people. And so we get kind of talking cross-purposes. But the way I use it, the way it's generally used in the, in the science and the philosophy of consciousness is, is just to mean subjective experience. Pleasure, pain, visual or auditory experiences, itches, itchy sensations, any kind of experience. So your, your consciousness is just what it's like to be you right now. So right now you're having a visual experience of the room around you an auditory experience of my voice speaking to you, tactile sensation of the clothes on your body, if you kind of attend to that. This is all different aspects of what it's like to be you right now. And that's all we mean by consciousness. You often hear people saying, um, you know, it's a mystery. What nobody knows what consciousness is. I don't like that way of putting it. I think Nothing is more obvious than the reality of consciousness. You know, you, we're just talking about like your pain. You know what pain is when you feel it, right? It's just a feeling and you, when you feel it, you know what a feeling is. So the mystery is not what consciousness is. It's rather where it comes from or more generally how it fits in to our overall theory of reality. So despite great progress in our, in our scientific understanding of the brain over the last few decades especially. We still don't really have even the beginnings of an explanation of how complicated electrochemical signaling could somehow produce an inner world of colors and sounds and smells and tastes that each of us enjoys every second of waking life. In fact, everything we know about the brain scientifically seems to just leave it totally open whether or not consciousness exists at all. It doesn't seem to shed any light on how consciousness comes to be. So this is what uh, has become known as the hard problem of consciousness. The Australian philosopher David Chalmers coined that term in the 1990s. Often defined as just the challenge of explaining how brains produce consciousness. So this is now taken very seriously, which wasn't always the case, but people now, it's generally thought there is this deep scientific challenge of um, how, explaining how brains produce consciousness. But still, a fairly common response is just to say, well, there are lots of challenges science faces. We just need to plug away with our standard methods of investigating the brain and we'll one day crack it, right? It used to be, I remember 10 years ago, every time you read an article in Scientific American or New Scientist on consciousness, that's what they'd say. They'd say, you know, oh, there's this deep mystery. Let's just do more brain science. I think that's changed a lot, but it's still a fairly common response. I don't think that's right, though. Um, why hasn't that changed? Oh, 
just, just was a bit delayed. I think that the problem of consciousness is radically different from any of the other challenges science faces. Or in fact, it's, the point is it's not a purely scientific question I want to put to you. It's partly a scientific question, but it's partly a philosophical question. And we're not going to solve an essentially philosophical question just by doing more experiments, important as experiments are to understanding consciousness. And I think that one way of seeing this is, is, is to appreciate that consciousness is not publicly observable. You can't, I can't cut open your brain and see your feelings and experiences. Consciousness isn't something we discovered looking down a microscope or in a particle collider. We know that consciousness exists not from observation and experiment, but just through our immediate awareness of our own feelings and experiences. If you're in pain, you're just directly aware of the reality of your pain. Now, of course, science is used to dealing with things we can't observe. Fundamental particles, quantum wave functions, maybe even other universes some physicists take seriously. But there's an important difference in the case of consciousness that makes it not a purely scientific question. And that difference is that in all of these other cases, we postulate things we can't observe in order to explain what we can observe. That is the whole, biz the whole business of science. Let's define science as explaining the data of observation experiments, right? So yes, we, we postulate in our theories things we can't see, but that's in order to explain what we can see. The, the explanatory task is explaining observation, public observation, right? In the unique case of consciousness, though, the thing we are trying to explain is not publicly observable, right? And that makes it totally unique, and, and, and that's, by definition, means it's, it's not an essentially scientific question, or it's not a wholly scientific question. If we're defining a scientific task as explaining public observation experiments, that's fundamentally not what we're doing here. We're trying to explain something we know about in a very different way, just through our immediate awareness of our feelings. Now, you know, don't get me wrong, science, experimental science is absolutely crucial to understanding consciousness. So how is that, how do we do, there is a robust and well-developed science of consciousness. How is that possible if consciousness is not a publicly observable datum? Well, although I can't observe your feelings and experiences, if you're a human being, which I think most of you are, I can ask you, right? I could say, what are you feeling? What are you, tell me what you're experiencing. And if I do that while I'm scanning your brain, or uh, maybe stimulating bits of your brain and saying, what, what did you feel then? Then I can start, as a, as a scientist, to correlate which kinds of brain activity go along with which kinds of experience. And we can try and get more systematic. We can try and, we can try and work out, in general, you know, what kinds of physical activity are necessary and sufficient for conscious experience. Um, 
There's very little consensus on this. Uh, in, the, in the 90s, in the mid-90s, the, the uh, neuroscientist Christoph Koch bet the philosopher David Chalmers a crate of fine wine that in 25 years we'd have totally pinned down what we call the neural correlates of consciousness, like which kinds of brain activity are necessary and sufficient for consciousness. I think it's probably about time he paid up because, you know, there are about five candidate options, no agreement. So it's, just, you know, it's an important scientific question, but at the moment there's, there's a lot of, there's no consensus. Okay, but, but that is something we can in some way make progress on experimentally. Which kinds of brain activity go along with which kinds of experience? That's a, that is, a, I think, a scientific question. And that's really important data. But that's not a theory of consciousness. What we ultimately want from a theory of consciousness is an explanation of why certain kinds of brain activity go along with certain kinds of conscious experience. Why should that be? Why should brain activity go along with conscious experience at all? What is going on in reality to undergird that fact? And because consciousness is not a publicly observable datum, that is not something you can answer with an experiment. Right? You, you do experiments to account for uh, experimental hypotheses, but because consciousness is not publicly observable, we can't just answer that question with an experiment. So I think of the consciousness research as divided into the sort of scientific bit and the philosophical bit. The scientific bit is work out which kinds of brain activity go along with which kinds of experience. And the philosophical bit is to, is to explain why brain activity goes along with experience. Just look at the different proposals philosophers have offered for explaining this fact, for what is going on in reality to account for it and try and assess which is most likely to be true. And people find out today, you know, I think as a society we've sort of forgotten what philosophy is and the point of it, but so long as we accept that consciousness is not a publicly observable datum, then I think it follows logically <laughs> that this is not a purely scientific question. So sadly, we have to do some philosophy. Now, you might think, okay, well, maybe we can in some way, you know, divide up the, the what question and the why question that way, but surely what physical science will one day answer both of these questions? We'll not only say which kinds of brain activity go along with consciousness, but also why? Why brain activity produces consciousness? And people making this case, so this is the view we, we call materialism or sometimes physicalism. I, I would use those words interchangeably if you've heard both of those words. So roughly the idea that consciousness will ultimately be explained in the terms of physical science. So it is, we haven't done it yet, but we, we can be confident we one day will. And materialists tend to see this as part of a broader trajectory of science explaining more and more of the phenomena in the world around us. Water turned out to be H2O molecules. Lightning turned out to be electric discharge. Heat turned out to be a molecular motion. So the thought is, in the same way, feelings and experiences will turn out just to be 
patterns of neural firings. Right? That's the basic idea. Oversimplifying slightly, but that's the basic idea of materialism. And I think the reason, getting back to Galileo now, the, I mean, I think the reason people um, have confidence in this position is they, they, they often defend it with a sort of inductive argument. Look at the great success of physical science in explaining more and more of our universe. Water, heat, electric discharge, stars, planets. What, surely that should give us confidence it'll one day get consciousness as well. But I think this inductive argument is undermined when we, when we appreciate that dealing with consciousness is not a purely scientific question. Yeah, if we're, if we're dealing with a scientific question, we can have confidence science is going to deal with it, unless there's some good argument that it can't. But this is not a purely scientific question. It's, it, it's an explanatory task radically different, for the reasons I've already articulated, from the other tasks of science. So the first point, as we've said, is that consciousness is not publicly observable. You know, what physical science has proved good at is explaining publicly observable behavior in a broad sense of the word behavior, right? You've got a physical system of some kind. You can explain its behavior and the behavior of its parts by postulating some kind of mechanism, ultimately postulating fundamental laws of physics. That's what physics does well, explaining complex behavior of systems that we can observe in the world and quantify. That's not what we're doing here, fundamentally, with consciousness, with the hard problem of consciousness, at least. We're not trying to explain some behavior. We're trying to explain these invisible, subjective qualities that we know about from the inside, because we're immediately aware of them. The colors, the smells, the taste of the coffee. You can't get at that from the outside, but we know it's real because we are aware of it from the inside. So it's just, it's a radically different explanatory task. Um, so I think that undermines it, you know, that the fact that physical science has been really good at this one task, gives it, is there no reason to think that just gives us confidence that it's gonna be good at this quite different, essentially philosophical task. I mean, an analogy I sometimes give, it's like saying, telescopes are really good for astronomy. Probably they'll be good for pure math. Maths. I keep slipping into American. Uh, it's just a totally different expansion enterprise, and I think something similar is going on here. The second point loops back to where we started. Physical science has been incredibly successful, but since, and arguably because, Galileo put consciousness outside of the domain of science. We can see Galileo essentially gave physical science, what he called natural philosophy, a quite focused, specific task, right? He says, just forget about consciousness with these kind of weird qualities. Put that on one side. Just focus on what you can capture mathematically. And that went, that's gone really well, you know, just having that narrow focus. But the fact that it's gone well since we took consciousness out of the picture doesn't mean it's going to go well once we bring consciousness back in. I have an analogy in my book, Galileo's Error, quick plug. Um, you know, when I was first a 
philosophy lecturer. You know, you have three tasks as an academic, very different tasks, teaching, research, and administration. And for the first term, the head of department said, let me off administration, so you don't have to do admin for the first term. And I think I did pretty good at the job, if I do say so myself, with the teaching and the writing. That doesn't mean I'm going to be good at admin, right? Just because I'd be good at this one thing doesn't mean... And sadly, I wasn't wonderful. Although I'm conscientious, so... But not, not the most organised person. But I think something, else is, something similar is going on here. Just because, you know, physical science has been really good at this one expansionary task, I think we're going through a phase of history where people are so blown away by how well it's gone. They're like, wonderful technology. And they're like, that's everything. But it's gone so well because it was given this quite narrow, precise focus. Okay. So, okay, what does this show? What does this show? All I've done so far, really, is, is try and undermine this sense people have that materialism about consciousness has to be true, right? I think there's no really good argument to think it has to be true or it's probably true. But I also think there's pretty good arguments that it can't possibly be true. <laughs> that it's just not really coherent to think, you know, we can explain subjective, fully explain subjective qualities in terms of the quantitative language of physical science. Um, so what I'll do here in the next two slides is just sort of, it's a huge debate. I mean, so I've written an academic book, Consciousness and Fundamental Reality, from 2017, Oxford University Press giving, you know, the, the huge academic philosophical debate on this. And then my book, Galileo's Errors, is more aimed at a general audience. But I, so I just introduce you to the, to the debate, the, the philosophical discussion here, that materialism about consciousness just, is just incoherent. Um, maybe we can talk about it more. Uh, so where I'd like to start is, Something I think Galileo is right upon, that I think, you, you know, you, you can't capture the qualities of conscious experience in the purely quantitative language of physical science. Uh, I like to talk about this guy, Nut Nordby, who's a Scandinavian colour scientist, who has cones missing from his eyes, so he, he can only see black and white and shades of grey but he's an expert on, on colour experience. And he likes the philosophical debates, so he likes to think, I won't read out this quote, but he likes to think about, try and imagine what colour must be like, the qualities of colour experience. And of course, he knows a lot about colour experience in a sense. He knows a lot about the, the, the structure, the quantitative structure of colour experience, which can be carved up into hue, saturation, and brightness, or lightness. Uh, and then you can map out a similarity space along those three dimensions. But what, 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 he, what he misses out on is the qualities that fill out that structure. So in his imaginative explorations, he says, you know, he, he tries to fit sound into that kind of structure and thinks of like, you know, loudness like brightness and pitch like cue, or maybe I'm getting those wrong. You get the idea. But he realizes that's, he's, there's something he's missing out here. You can't really capture the colours, the sounds, the smells, the tastes in, in this kind of language, mathematical language. You couldn't convey to a blind person what it's like to see red. Um, and that's not because 
you know, I haven't found actually talking to scientists about this. There been a lot of conferences recently with, 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 with mostly scientists. And they said, well, we just, we just haven't done enough experiments yet. We just need to, we will one day. But it's, this isn't because we haven't done enough experiments yet. This is, it's the kind of concepts at play here. Right? Philosophers deal with concepts. There are two very, just totally different kinds of concept at play here. In physical science, you have these kind of, as I say, broadly behavioral concepts. The, the kind of concepts in neuroscientists deal with is what stuff does, what bits of the brain do, what its parts do. These kind of theoretical concepts to do with how systems behave. On the other hand, think about, you know, these concepts form when you just attend to your experience, the color, the, the, the qualitative character of red, the taste of coffee, the smell of wine. These are very different kinds of concept, very different kinds of idea. One, one is kind of theoretical. One is just demonstrative, philosophers call it. You just sort of point at something inside you. And so they're just very different kinds of concepts, so you can't even in principle sort of translate from one to the other. Now, this is actually, the claim I've just made that I'm summing up here, this, descript this descriptive, is actually something there's a really now a very significant consensus in ph among philosophers. Uh, there's a big, you might be interested, there's this big, called the Phil Papers survey in 2020 of Anglophone philosophers' opinions, like, do you believe in God? Do we have free will? So on. On consciousness, 60% of philosophers accept this claim that you can't sort of, you, you can't capture the qualities of conscious experience in the language of physical science, not because we haven't done enough experiments, just, they're just really different kinds of concept. You know, this is, that's what, that's what the relevant expertise when you're dealing with concepts of philosophers, and you very rarely get consensus among philosophers. So I think we should take it very seriously when 60%, and it's not like 40% are on the other side. It's like, 30, I can't remember exactly, but something like 13% disagree with this. And then the others don't like the question or something, you know. <laughs> Philosophers are annoying people. But, you know, there's a really serious... I, I can't think of many other philosophical questions where there's that amount of consensus. So, you know, like we take it very seriously when there's consensus in, in the relevant expertise in science. I think we should take it very seriously. I mean, it shouldn't settle the question, you know. You work, work it out for yourself, read the literature. But when the relevant exp expertise take... Is this level of consensus? I think that's significant. Now you might say, okay, this is, just a, this is just, as I'm calling it, a descriptive limitation. It's about what you can capture in the language of physical science. But you, many of you may be thinking, look, the reason he can't see colors is because of something in his brain. Or well, not his brain in this case, the cones in his eyes, right? Something physical. So why is this a problem for materialism? Okay, so th this is just the, the starting point of the argument, right? This descriptive limitation that in the language of physical science, you can't describe these qualities. You can't convey the redness of a red experience. So that's the starting point. But I think that entails an explanatory limitation. That descriptive limitation entails an explanatory limitation. Because I, in order to account for the qualities of experience, physical science would, would first have to describe those qualities. So suppose, to make this concrete, suppose I have my great new neuroscientific theory that's supposed to explain, you know, that deep red you experience when you watch the setting sun, right? I'm going to explain that with my neuroscience theory. I'm going to show how patterns of neural firings 
fully explain that experience of deep red, what, including that it has the character, the quality it does. Well, my theory would first have to articulate that deep red quality. It would first have to describe it in the terms of the theory and then show how that quality can be explained in terms of patterns of neural firings. If my theory can't even articulate the datum, the thing we're trying to explain, then it certainly can't reductively explain it. So this isn't just, you know, we haven't got there yet, we haven't done enough experiments. In principle, because of the very different kinds of concept at play here, in principle, it doesn't make any sense. It just doesn't make coherent sense to fully explain consciousness in the terms of physical science. It doesn't make sense. Um, and we shouldn't be surprised at that. This isn't a scientific, fully scientific question. This is, it's, it's, we're trying to, it's a very different explanatory task. So in a way, it's not kind of surprising that it doesn't make sense. Okay, that is the negative part of my talk, which is um, the, the negative case against materialism about consciousness, which is probably still that, well, I'll, get, I'll give you some more data in a moment about what, what people think. Still, I suppose, the, the dominant view, though, why I don't think it can be true. Now turn to my positive alternative, uh, that I defend this view known as panpsychism. So I'll give you just the basic case for panpsychism as a good alternative, then we'll have a break and talk about, I don't know what we're going to talk about, some other stuff. Okay, so panpsychism is the view that, so I guess in our normal way of thinking about things, consciousness exists only in the brains of highly evolved organisms, and so has existed uh, only in, in a tiny part of the universe and only in very recent history, cosmically speaking. But according to panpsychism, consciousness pervades the universe and is a fundamental feature of it. On one understanding of it, the idea is that the, the, the basic building blocks of the physical universe, perhaps fundamental particles like electrons and quarks, have incredibly simple forms of experience and the very complex experience of the human or animal brain is somehow derived from very simple forms of experience at the level of basic physics. So, well, that was very loud, wasn't it? Something went really loud. What was not moving on? A couple of clarifying a couple of common misunderstandings doesn't necessarily mean everything is conscious, right? Doesn't necessarily mean your socks are conscious. One of my students put this on Facebook as an example of what they're being taught in their classes. But um, as I say, the basic idea is that the fundamental building blocks of reality, perhaps fundamental particles, perhaps fields, many theoretical physicists think fields are the fundamental constituents of reality. I tend to talk about particles for the sake of simplicity. Ultimately, actually, I prefer a kind of fields-based panpsychism, but anyway. But it doesn't mean every random combination of particles is conscious, right? It doesn't mean rocks and socks and tables and chairs. So it doesn't mean this table is conscious. It just means perhaps that it's the smallest things it's made up of. 
have some kind of very rudimentary experience. It doesn't mean the table has experience in its own right. Although some panpsychists do think literally everything is conscious. Um, very good panpsychist philosopher Luke Roloffs. Uh, but I think the, the more common view would be much more conservative about which macroscopic things have conscious experience. Also very important, when we say things like electrons are conscious, they don't have anything like the kind of consciousness we have. Right? Human experience is the result of millions of years of evolution. You know, we have very complicated visual experiences, deep emotions, subtle thoughts. Our brains are set up to receive information about the environment and process it. And, you know, an electron has nothing like that. But consciousness comes in all shapes and sizes, right? Human experience is very rich and complicated. The experience of a horse is maybe a little bit less complicated. The experience of a vole or a rabbit may be simpler. Get down to thinking about a fly. Does a fly have experience when it's kind of banging on the window? Is there some kind of very simple form of suffering there? Bed bugs. As we move to simpler and simpler forms of life, we find simpler and simpler forms of experience. For the panpsychist, this continues right down to the basic building blocks of matter, which on this view have incredibly simple forms of experience to reflect their incredibly simple nature. Okay, so panpsychism has always existed as, as long as philosophy has existed in both West and East. Had something of a heyday in the 19th century. It was an incredibly popular view. I, uh, my, my colleague Peter West is a historian of philosophy and he recently tweeted this quote from Susan Stebbing in 1937 saying, of course all physicists are idealists. So idealists is kind of similar to panpsychism. I guess idealism closer to the Donald Hoffman view you're going to hear in a moment. But basically she's saying, of course, all physicists think consciousness is fundamental. I'm, he said, I'm yet to meet a physicist who doesn't. Um, so it's, it's remarkable, actually, how fast fashions change. But I guess since the latter half of the... I think something, something went changed in the Second World War. That shouldn't be a surprising fact, shouldn't it? But in, in the post-war years, I think, we start to have, in philosophy, a materialist consensus taking hold... Um, which, which, which remains to some extent uh, the dominant view today. So panpsychism, when I was studying philosophy, was you know, laughed at insofar as it was thought of at all. I didn't learn about panpsychism as philosophy undergraduate. But it's, in the past 10 years or so, it's come to the fore, um, partly through the emergence of the integrated information theory in neuroscience, one of the leading... Con I said there's no consensus in neuroscience about... The neuro, which theory gets the neural correlates of consciousness. Integrated information theory is one prominent uh, candidate which arguably has panpsychist implications, at least insofar as it entails that consciousness is more widespread than we previously took it to be. So that's one reason people are taking panpsychism more seriously. But in academic philosophy, where I work, it's, it's, there's been a, re a renewed focus on certain work that was kind of forgotten about from the 1920s by... 
The great philosopher Bertrand Russell, in this book, The Analysis of Matter, he proposed a, sort, a, a radically new and interesting approach to consciousness, um, which had precedent in lots of, in lots of earlier work. Uh, and many people have taken that in a panpsychist direction and has developed this, this Bertrand Russell-inspired form of panpsychism, and that's what I and others have developed. And this is getting you know, taken very seriously, lots of publications books, and so on. Uh, so actually, the, there is data on this. That, so this Phil Papers survey I referred to before, in terms of the consciousness question, so what do, what do professional philosophers think about consciousness, Anglophone philosophers? Um, so physicalism is still the most popular position at 51.9%, but then anti-physicalists are 32.1%. Uh, and then the rest are agnostic or don't like the question. So, you know, this has gone from being anything other than physicalism is just ridiculous to, I mean, it's not quite the Brexit vote, but, you know, there's obviously 32 to, 52 to 32, there's a big disagreement here, a big split. And the trajectory, I would say, is that, you know, physicalism is getting slightly less popular. Well, maybe, maybe I can't make that case without some data. Anyway, okay, then among anti-physicalists, uh, about three-quarters are dualists who think that consciousness is non-physical outside of the body and the brain, and then a quarter are panpsychists. So it's very much the third position with sort of the liberal democrats of philosophy, or maybe the Green Party, it's a bit cooler. But, uh, you know, but it's a, it's a, it's a, where it was one, I mean, the last time they did the survey, it wasn't on the table at all. So it's gone from being a view that's laughed at, to being, you know, a view that you have to take seriously, you have to deal with the arguments and so on. Okay, so what I'll finish with before the break is just give you the, the, the basic introduction to this Bertrand, Bertrand Russell inspired. So the way I like to think about it is, is it kind of turns the hard problem of consciousness on its head. Um, So we t people tend to think of the problem of consciousness, you know, they tend to start with the brain, matter, ultimately understood through physics, and think, how do you get consciousness out of that? Right? I don't think you can make coherent sense of that project for the reasons I've talked about, but, the, but this Russell-inspired panpsychist approach turns that on its head, right? Rather than starting with matter and trying to get consciousness out of it, Start with consciousness and try to get matter out of it. You've got Donald Hoffman talking next, and I heard him interview Lex Friedman recently saying, saying panpsychism is dualist. That's not the case. If he says that, tell him off. This is not starting off with, I mean, that suggests the panpsychists start off with matter and consciousness. That's not the case. We're starting off with consciousness and trying to get matter out of consciousness. And it turns out, as Russell realized, this is really easy to do. Um, and the reason it's easy to do is because of the purely mathematical nature of physics. The description of reality, so what Russell was doing in the 1920s, I think, was really just thinking really hard about what we infer from the fact that physics is purely mathematical. You know, that's kind of very useful. You know, as I say, we're kind of so used to that. 
But as I say, it was this radical innovation of Galileo. And it's very useful if you're a practicing scientist. You can make very precise predictions. You can quantify things very precisely. What does it mean as a philosopher interested in the ultimate nature of reality that our fundamental science is purely mathematical? And I think you can kind of go two ways with that. You might say, well, that must show that at the fundamental level, reality is purely mathematical. The, the physicist Max Tegmark defends this, right? Reality is made up of numbers and functions and vectors, the kind of things mathematics talk, mathematical physics talks about. We live in a mathematical universe. An alternative approach, though, and this is what Russell himself, the approach Russell himself took, is, is to those, or maybe there's something that underlies the mathematical structures physics identifies. Maybe there's something that those mathematical structures are the mathematical structure of. There's this famous line from Stephen Hawking. Um, well, let me, let me, I'm jumping the gun a little bit. So this is the, this is the panpsychist approach. And the proposal is that it's consciousness that underlies the, uh, the structures identified by mathematical physics. So the basic thought is, at the fundamental level of reality, what we find are uh, networks of very, very simple conscious entities. And because they have very simple kinds of experience, they behave in very simple, predictable ways. Through their interactions, they realize certain mathematical, predictable mathematical structures. And then the thought is, what physicists are capturing are those mathematical structures. Those mathematical structures realized by the interactions of these networks of conscious, simple conscious entities are the mathematical structures identified by physics. So in this way, we get physics out of some more fundamental underlying story about consciousness. So in this view, Nick, in a way, when you're doing physics, you're learning about these simple forms of consciousness. Of course, you don't know that's what you're doing. My, my niece has just started doing uh, physics at Manchester. It doesn't seem like she's learning about these little conscious entities, but that's just because, as a physicist, you're interested in the mathematical structures themselves. You're not interested in what, if anything, underlies those mathematical structures. That's more of a philosophical question. So yeah, so Stephen Hawking famously said, even final physics will be just a bunch of equations. It won't tell us what breathes fire into the equations. The panpsychist view is that it's consciousness that breathes fire into the equations. So it's very hard, I would say, impossible to get consciousness out of physics. It's dead easy to get physics out of consciousness because, because physics is purely mathematical. So as long as you've got stuff fulfilling the right mathematical patterns, you've got physics, right? That's the basic thought. That was Russell's genius insight. So final thing, just before we come to a break, just to kind of hammer this home. Very interesting physicist, Sabine Hossenfelder, does a lot of popular stuff, really, really cool. I disagree with her on a lot of stuff, but, you know, really interesting thinker. She had this blog post. It's like an off-panpsychism. Uh... And she was interpreting it, like Donald Hoffman, in a sort of dualistic way. She was thinking, oh, the idea is 
The particles have their physical properties, mass, spin, and charge. And then they also have these funny consciousness properties. And her thought was basically, well, that, that would show up in experiments, right? Our, what we call the standard model of particle physics, our best theory of the fundamental types of particle, that's based on their physical properties of particles, like mass, spin, and charge. If particles also had these consciousness properties, we'd get different predictions. But that's just misunderstanding the view, right? That, or at least this Rossellian kind of panpsychism. Uh, the Rossellian panpsychism is, gonna, is it's not trying to change physics. It's saying, like, the standard model is fine as it is. It's just not the fundamental level of reality. We've got a deeper story going on of these networks of very simple conscious entities that realize the structures, uh, the mathematical structures we get in the standard model of particle physics. So Hossenfelder is a little bit like a biologist who knows loads about cells and cellular biology. And they've heard people talk about wave functions. And they're like, I don't find wave functions in tigers. I don't believe in wave functions. But the wave functions are a deeper explanatory story than what you get in cellular biology. For the panpsychist, physics is not the most fundamental story. Physics gives us these mathematical structures, but there's some story, according to panpsychism, underlying those mathematical structures. Actually, it might be interesting. To, the difference between me and Donald Hoffman, as I understand it, Hoffman thinks that he want, what he wants is mathematical structures deeper than physics, right? I, I don't see that, and that's why his view is idealist rather than panpsychist, because there's a, there's a deeper level of mathematical structure. I don't see the motivation for that. So for the panpsychist, what physics gives us is the, is the basic mathematical structures, right? So I'm not going to come up with some mathematical structures to rival physics. That's the basic mathematical structure, but it doesn't tell us what breathes fire into that mathematical structure. It doesn't tell us what realizes those mathematical structures. So physics gives us the basic maths. I think Hoffman thinks there's going to be deeper maths. My view, physics gives us the basic maths, but consciousness fills out that basic maths. Um, okay, final slide before the break. Um, all right, so even if, this is, if, even if this is consistent with modern science, even if we can't disprove it empirically, as Hossenfelder tries to do. Why should we take it seriously? Why should we think this is true? Well, as I said, addressing the hard problem of consciousness is a philosophical issue. We've just got to look at the various models, the various hypotheses philosophers have proposed for explaining the, the, the data that consciousness goes along with brain activity. What explains that? And broadly speaking, here are the three theories. One, materialism, that consciousness emerges from physics. Two, panpsychism, physics emerges from consciousness. I guess idealism would also fit in there, the kind of view Hoffman's going to give you later. Or dualism, that both consciousness and matter are distinct and equally fundamental. Maybe consciousness is in the soul. So basically, my view is, the first view is just incoherent. We just can't make coherent sense of the idea that you could get consciousness from physics. Dualism, I think... I think is a coherent option. I also, we could talk about this maybe, I used to think we could empirically disprove it. I don't think that now. I don't, the more I've talked to neuroscientists, I just don't think we know enough about the brain 
to do anything like rule out. I, I used to think, like many philosophers, that if dualism was true, there'd be, so there'd be like some non-physical thing like the soul impacting on the brain, that would show up in our neuroscience. In principle, that's right, but I just think we don't know anywhere near enough about the, the functioning of the brain, the actual, how, how it works at the cellular level uh, in order to make that kind of case. So I think at this stage, dualism is both empirically and philosophically coherent, but as scientists and philosophers, we, we try to respect Occam's razor, we try to have the simplest, most parsimonious theory of reality, and panpsychism is simpler than dualism. Why believe in two kinds of thing when you can just believe in one? Where you can tell a whole story just with consciousness at the fundamental level. So materialism is incoherent. Panpsychism is simpler than dualism. So the, the, the best, coherent, simplest solution to the hard problem of consciousness is the one given by panpsychism. Okay, so... That's the basic case against materialism, the basic case for the panpsychist alternative. All right, so we've, so we've so far talked about the basic case against materialism, in my view, the basic case for panpsychism. I want to talk about something a little bit different now. So that's basically my, my, my last book, Galileo's Error, available at all good bookshops. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about the book I'm currently working on that I hope will be out in a year or so. And here I'm focusing on what, what we might... So we've started off talking about the, the hard problem of consciousness. What I want to talk about now is what we might call the even harder problem of consciousness, which is my word for the distinctive philosophical challenges that arise when we think about the kinds of conscious experience involved in understanding and conceptual thought. And I think this introduces radical, new, and even more difficult challenges that we're really not, as a scientist or philosophers, really not even at first base on thinking about, and I think are ultimately going to lead us to a pretty radically different theory of reality. Okay, so I'm going to give you a sort of problem and a solution. Um, So what I discuss, one thing I discuss in my new book is this even harder problem of consciousness or what I, put, what I call the meaning zombie challenge. So I'm going to introduce you to the, the meaning zombie problem. So I don't know, is anyone, is anyone familiar with philosophical zombies? Has anyone come across philosophical zombies? So this is, the word zombie is a kind of technical term in philosophy. So it's very important to distinguish philosophical zombies from Hollywood zombies, okay? I'm sure you've all heard of Hollywood zombies. So Hollywood zombies, as we all know, look like this, and this, and this. Philosophical zombies look like this, and this, and this. Oh. In other words, philosophical zombies look just like ordinary human beings. And they not only look, they behave and they walk and talk in every way just like a normal human being. And that's because the physical or the behavioral functioning of their brain is just like that of a normal human being. But there's a crucial difference. A philosophical zombie is not conscious. 
There's nothing that it's like to be a philosophical zombie. So you stick a knife in a philosophical zombie, they'll scream and try and run away, but they don't actually feel pain. A philosophical zombie is, you know, they're crossing the road, they'll sort of look both ways and wait for the traffic to stop and cross, but they don't actually have any visual or auditory experience of the world around them. A philosophical zombie is just a complicated mechanism with no feelings or experience that's set up to behave just like a normal human being. Okay, so we can define a philosophical zombie as a physical or functional, meaning sort of to do with its behavior or functioning, duplicate of a human being but which doesn't have consciousness. Now, nobody thinks these things are real. I think there's one philosopher who thinks everyone's a zombie but him. But, you know, most people are not thinking these things are real. But it, it's a useful thought experiment for various purposes. So, back to David Chalmers again, famously used them as a part of an argument against materialism, which we're not, I'm not going to talk about today. But here's another way you can use the philosophical thought experiment of zombies to pose a kind of challenge to an evolutionary explanation of consciousness. Because you know, evolution, natural selection, is, as it were, only interested in behavior. Natural selection is interested in survival. And survival is about how you behave. Now, a zombie, a complicated mechanism without consciousness, would, would behave just the same as us, by definition, and so would survive just as well. So this raises the challenge, well, why aren't we zombies? Why have we, why have we developed consciousness? You know, natural selection doesn't care about our inner lives, just wants things that can behave. I'm personifying natural selection a bit, but I think you get the idea. So why aren't we zombies? Why have we evolved with consciousness? Um, I don't think this, this is a challenge which bothers a panpsychist very much, because for a panpsychist, consciousness is kind of everywhere. As I say, it's, it's not everywhere at the macro level, but you might think it's, it's a lot of places at the macro level. So a panpsychist could maybe say, well, we're conscious just because like, pretty much everything is conscious. Maybe this would be a challenge for a materialist, maybe not. Okay, so I don't want to raise quite this challenge, but I want to raise a similar challenge in terms of a slightly different kind of zombie. And to introduce you to that slightly different kind of zombie, I want to make a distinction between two kinds of consciousness. Sensory consciousness and understanding experience. Um, so sensory consciousness is what, what philosophers and scientists are generally talking about when they talk about consciousness. When people talk about consciousness, they always talk about seeing red, feeling pain, itchy sensations. This is what I've been talking about so far. This is what I talk about in my last two books. Um, Colours, sounds, smells, tastes, that kind of thing. But I'm inclined to think, I'd be curious to know if you agree, that consciousness is not exhausted by these kinds of qualities. I'm inclined to think that, when I reflect on my own experience, that human experience is permeated with conceptual meaning and understanding. What things are and mean is represented in our conscious experience. If I look around me now, I don't just experience colors and shapes. I experience faces, people, cups of coffee, 
the fact that this is a face is part of the character of my experience, it seems to me, right? I couldn't exhaustively describe my visual experience just talking about colors and shapes. That's the, what things are is part of the character of my experience. Another example, if I look, look at these words on this PowerPoint slide, I don't just experience meaningless squiggles. I experience meaningful words. If you don't speak English, if you don't know it, to read English, it might look like meaningful squirrel, squiggle, squirrels, <laughs> squiggles. But what the words mean, I want to say, is, is represented in your visual experience. Same with when you hear words, what the words mean. If I say, get out, the building's on fire. It's the fact that someone is, what I've just said to you is, is part of the character of your auditory experience. It's probably not an ideal example to give. Or um, the sadness, this isn't my child, this was found on Google Images, but I have a child, and you know, if you, when your child is sad and you look at their face, it's, the, this, it, it's as though the sadness is present on their face, it appears present on their face. That's part of the character of your experience. So in all these subtle ways, concepts, what things are and mean, fill our conscious experience. Even though we, when philosophers and scientists, listen to philosophers and scientists talk about consciousness, they don't often talk about this, which is what I call understanding experience. And I think as a scientific and philosophical community, we're really not at first base in, in trying to make sense of this, and I think it raises very, very deep challenges, which I hope we'll get onto. Um, actually, I, I mean, just to flag up, the existence of understanding experience is actually controversial in philosophy. Analytic philosophy, in Anglophone philosophy, about 50% of philosophers, people like Michael Ty and Jesse Prince, they say when they attend to their experience, they just find colors and shapes. They think that they don't find this understanding experience. Whereas people, including myself, say it, it seems just obvious when you attend to your experience. It's, it's not just colors and shapes. I, you know, whenever I teach my undergraduate students this, they, they're baffled by the idea that maybe it's the way I teach, <laughs> that uh, there's just colors and shapes in our experience. But it's hard to know how to settle the debate because, you know, it's just about the character of our experience. It, Maybe some people don't have understanding experience. Anyway, I'm going to start from the assumption that there is such a thing as understanding experience and explore the challenges it raises. Okay, so in terms of this distinction between two kinds of experience, let me introduce you to one of my new imaginary friends. The meaning zombie. So a meaning zombie is a slight twist on the zombie thought experiment. So a meaning zombie is a functional duplicate of a human being, behaves just like us. Their, their brain functions in the same way. They have consciousness, but they only have sensory consciousness. Colors, sounds, smells, tastes, maybe pain, maybe kind of feelings like pain, itchiness, but they have no understanding experience. No understanding of what things are or mean. Maybe one way to think about this, the great philosopher and psychologist William James 
said that the, the, the experience of an infant, of a newborn infant, he referred to it as a buzzing, blooming confusion. So I think infants are conscious, but it's just some kind of meaningless experience if you ever, you know, look at a baby that is sort of, you know, don't know what the hell's going on. Then as the child grows, they, their meaningless experience slowly starts to represent what things are and what they mean. Objects, possibilities, stuff they want. But for a meaning zombie, in this thought experiment, I'm inviting you to join me on. That was a bit of a mixed metaphor. Um, the meaning zombie grows up, and its behavior gets more like a normal adult, but its conscious experience stays a meaningless, buzzing, blooming confusion. It's just colors and shapes. Maybe confusion isn't quite the right word. I think you have to have some understanding to be confused, but... Sorry? Alzheimer's? Yeah, yeah, that might be a good way of thinking about it if you just... Second childhood, yeah. Although I suppose an Alzheimer's person, their behavior changes as well. I'm, in this strange thought experiment, I'm imagining someone who, that's a nice, it's on the inside has Alzheimer's, but they behave just the same. Sound a bit far-fetched, perhaps? Well, we can, we can talk about that. But that's the sci-fi thought experiment. That's a, perhaps a nice way of thinking about it. Uh, that, okay, so why am I thinking, again, I'm not, I don't think meaning zombies are real. Why am I thinking about them then, if they're not real, just for fun? Well, I think they pose something like this same challenge to an evolutionary explanation, this time of understanding experience. Oh no, it's, still, it's the same slide, sorry. <laughs> am I, oh, I'm pressing the wrong way, I'm an idiot. This is my, how my simple mind works. It's there, point there. That's still not working. Okay, so this is what I'm calling the meaning zombie problem. A meaning zombie would, behave, would survive just as well as us because it behaves just the same as us. So why aren't we meaning zombies? Why do we have understanding experience? Natural selection doesn't care about the quality of our inner lives. It just wants us to behave like, survive in a way that's, behave in a way that's gonna help us survive. So why did natural selection give us understanding experience? That's the question I'm posing with this thought experiment. They copied the others. Say again? They copied the others. They copied the others, people. Uh, well, I suppose you'd have to already have others who have understanding experience. I suppose what I'm asking is, why are there any organisms at all with understanding experience in the first place? Uh, um, and I think, this is a, I think this is a really important challenge because I th I'm inclined to think, see what other people think, understanding experiences is the most important thing about human existence. Our experience of what things are and mean is, is what makes us the kind of creatures we are. I'm inclined to think actually, it sounds a bit harsh, that a meaning zombie wouldn't actually be a person. It doesn't have... It's just it's got this meaningless experience. It behaves like a person, but it doesn't have any understanding of anything. It's, it's less understanding than a rabbit. A rabbit has underst some understanding of what's going on around it, but a meaning zombie, as I'm defining them, just, it's just meaningless. They feel pain, 
and pleasure, so maybe they have moral significance in that sense, but they don't have any grasp on anything. So this very important characteristic of human existence, understanding experience, if we can't give an evolutionary account of it, of how it came to be, that's pretty worrying. Okay, now you might think, this is not making sense to me, you know, surely if we had meaningless experience, if, you know, if we, like meaning zombies, we'd behave in a meaningless way. Um, surely this doesn't make any sense. Well, what I'm assuming here is a quite common assumption among scientists and philosophers, some kind of micro-reductionism. Say again? Was it? Right, right, these things, I know, yes, it's, 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 robot, yes, it's, I mean, it's quite incredible the kind of technology we're having with these now, and actually, you know, sheds new insights on these, on these very questions. Um, but yeah, may, maybe I'll just get, get through this argument so we can have, a, have plenty of time for Q&A. Um, so the micro-reductionism, basically the thesis that our behavior is ultimately fixed by fundamental physics. That's a broad, broad assumption among scientists and philosophers. So, you know, what I do is explicable in terms of chemistry, is explicable in terms of physics. Oh, dear. You're okay. And so, ultimately, the way I behave is determined by the basic laws of physics. I'm going to question this, but I'm st it's my starting point. Right? My starting point. But if that's true, then a meaning zombie would behave just the same as us. As long as the physics at the fundamental level is the same, it's going to behave the same. It doesn't matter what comes up at higher levels, it's going to, it's, it's going to behave the same. So, so I think this, this is a, a, a very deep challenge. Um, I, I think I'd better just whiz through this before uh, in, in, interacting so, we can, so everyone has plenty of time for Q&A. Um, you might think, you know, I don't even know whether these meaning zombies are possible or... All that matters here is, 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 that, is that there seems to be a coherent notion. There doesn't seem any contradiction in the notion of a meaning zombie. And I think that's enough to pose the challenge here. This is just a challenge that on the face of it, there doesn't seem any connection between having understanding experience and behaving like us. And if that's the case, it's hard to see how we can give an evolutionary account of the emergence of understanding experience. Because evolution cares about behavior. If there's no connection between behaving like us and under having understanding experience, why do we have understanding experience? It's a challenge to give some explanation of how these two things connect. Okay, so that's the challenge. Why, why aren't we meaning zombies? Why do we have understanding experience? It seems like from the perspective of natural selection, it doesn't matter. So that's the challenge. And the final thing I want to do is give you a rather radical theory which addresses this challenge. So I start off with, um, I root this in, in a form, of, in interpretation of quantum mechanics. When people hear, you know, consciousness and quantum mechanics, people think, are oh, you just joining one wacky thing with another wacky thing? But actually, that my favored theory of quantum mechanics is the most boring one. It's the most non-wacky one. 
the pilot wave interpretation or Bohmian quantum mechanics. So, um, so the basic idea, if you think of what part wave particle duality, you know, that the weird, one weird thing about quantum mechanics is sometimes electrons behave like particles, sometimes like waves. The, the pilot wave theory solves that problem in the most boring way possible. It says there's both a wave-like entity called the wave function and there are particles. And the states of the former determine the states of the latter. So this wavy thing sort of pulls around the particles. Okay, that's the basic idea. And it's the most boring version. There's no wave-particle duality. There's no superpositions of the particle kind of being in no particular location, no like alive dead cats, Schrodinger's cat. There's not even any indeterminism. This is a deterministic theory. And because there are no alive dead cats superpositions, there's no role for conscious observation in collapsing the wave function. Um, so far, this is all like the many worlds interpretation of quantum mechanics. And this is why, actually, I think the many worlds interpretation is probably the most popular interpretation of quantum mechanics among philosophers because it gets rid of a lot of the wackiness. But at least there you have the sexiness of branching universes. Pilot wave theory, you don't even have that. Right, so it's, it's, the, it's the most boring interpretation of quantum mechanics. Okay, this is going to be my starting point. Um, one problem people have about the pilot wave theory, completely independent of what I'm going to talk about, is that, well, it's not independent, it's just a problem people have nothing to do with what we've been talking about so far, is on the face of it, on the pilot wave theory, particles don't seem to have any causal power of their own. It's like they're sort of dragged around by the wave function. And maybe that's a bit worrying if you think we're just made up of particles. Then it looks like we're just sort of dragged around by the wave function. We're like puppeted by the wave function. It sort of seems to undermine our agency or something. So this is something some philosophers worry about. So my, the theory I'm about to advance for the last five minutes or so... Uh, oh, we got 10. We got 10 or 15 minutes. Addresses this problem and also, I hope, solves the meaning zombie problem. Explains why we have, un why we have evolved understanding experience. Okay, so it's a wacky sounding view that I call panagentialism. Uh, kind of the, the, the wacky sounding view that uh, the roots of strong free will, not only is consciousness the roots of consciousness at the fundamental level, but the roots of strong free will. So on this view, um, particles are never compelled to act, but are rather disposed to respond rationally to the character of their experience. You might call it pan-rationalism, maybe, that the universe has rationality built into it. Okay, strange-sounding view, hear me out. Now, your initial thought might be, well, if, you know, if particles are sort of freely choosing what they want to do. Why don't we have chaos? Well, the thought is on this view that the, the, the wave function is determining how particles feel inclined to behave. What do I mean by inclined to behave? Something like a very, very, very simple version of what you feel when you yearn for something. When you're hungry, or you're tired, or you really want something, a conscious urge for something. That's very sophisticated in a human being, but presumably conscious urges get very simple and simpler forms of life. 
Again, the idea would be these conscious urges exist in a very crude form at the fundamental level with particles, and that they, the, the, the character of those yearnings are determined by the wave function. Okay, so particles sort of feel inclined to do certain things. And now if you're a human being and you feel a yearning to do something, sometimes you do it, but sometimes you think, is this a good idea? I really want the ice cream, but maybe I'm on a diet. Maybe I'm already eating too much. You can think, is this a good idea? Particles don't have rational deliberation. So the thought is that they are inevitably going to respond with the most basic rational impulse, which is do what you feel like doing. I want to say that is the most basic rational impulse, basic rational response, do what you feel like. I want to think that is rational. It's somewhat rational to do what you feel like doing. It's not the only rational response. So the thought is, because particles are so stupid, they're inevitably going to do what they feel like. And what they feel like is determined by the wave function. So this is what gets us the standard in predictions of quantum mechanics, which are called the Born Rule predictions. Right? So this is a metaphysical interpretation of what is underlying the kind of predictions we get from quantum mechanics. Um, so I, I was developing this thing, raising young children, you know, and if, it, if a young child, you know, wants the biscuit, wants the chocolate, they're going to try and get it, right? They're not going to say, is this a good idea? I've sort of already had some, you know. So the thought is, entities that lack rational deliberation on this view are inevitably going to do what they feel like doing because uh, they're, by their nature, uh, disposed to respond rationally and they're not sophisticated enough to do anything other than the most basic rational response. That's the thought. Okay, so this is going to be um, any panpsychist view worth its salt is not just going to have consciousness at the level of particles, it's going to have consciousness at the level of brains. So we're going to have to have some kind of uh, view, theory of mental combination where particles are disposed in certain circumstances to combine into conscious systems. And we're going to look to neuroscience to guide us in, in when that happens, right? As I've said, there are various proposals. I like the integrated information theory. We've already mentioned. Um, I could tell you why in Q&A. I won't now. Which tells us that you get consciousness at the systems level when there's more integrated information in the whole system than in its parts. So if that turns out to be the true theory of the neural correlates of consciousness, then combining it with this panagentious view, we say that particles have these basic dispositions such that when there's more integrated information in the whole system than its parts, the system as a whole becomes conscious. Okay, so that's, I'm using this as sort of the candidate for whatever theory of neuro, whatever neuroscientific theory turns out to be correct. Okay, so we're going to have to have some theory where in certain circumstances we get conscious particles combining into conscious systems. Okay, now, insofar as those systems that, those conscious systems that emerge lack experience understand, uh, understanding, insofar as they lack any understanding of what things are or what they mean, then 
they will, like particles, just follow the inclinations put into them by the wave function. They're going to just do what they feel like doing. Because if you don't have any understanding of the world, any understanding of what things are or what they mean, all you can do is do what you feel like. But as there emerge, this is the hypothesis, as there emerge systems whose experience embodies understanding of the environment, such systems may rationally respond to the apparent facts of the world rather than their conscious inclinations. So very, very simple, concrete example. You've got a rabbit running away from, what, a wolf? Do wolves chase rabbits? Fox, fox chase rabbits. Let's say that you know, the rabbit feels inclined to stop, but it knows, in some sense, that if it stops, it's going to get eaten. So it may respond to that fact rather than to its immediate inclinations. And on this view, it's, it's, it's the wave function that you know, determines its immediate inclinations. And, but the rabbit is not like a particle. A particle just follows its basic inclinations. The rabbit has some understanding of the world, so it may choose not to follow its basic inclinations. So we're going to get uh, systems that start to behave a bit differently as they gain understanding of what things are and what they mean on this view. And I think that's likely to lead to a survival advantage, right? Uh, I think there's likely to be a survival advantage in getting organisms that rationally respond directly to the apparent facts of the world rather than just blindly following the pushes, as it were, of the wave function. So basically the thought is natural selection wants to create creatures that behave, systems that behave rationally, because they're going to survive well. It's got two choices. It can either just sort of mechanically, using the laws of physics, mechanically build up a system that behaves rationally in a wide range of circumstances. That's really hard to do, as any AI researchers know, to try and get a system that's just, as it were, programmed to behave rationally in a wide range of circumstances, have what we call general artificial intelligence. Very, very difficult. An alternative for natural selection is just to try and get organisms with understanding experience, with conscious understanding of what things are and mean. Very simple at first, more complicated, because then the system can just, by its inherent disposition to respond rationally, which it has on this hypothesis, it can just directly respond to the facts of the world as they are presented to it. So evolution doesn't have to program it to behave rationally in lots of different circumstances. It just gives it understanding of the world. And then through its inherent disposition, it responds rationally. And it's, it's likely that that's going to be a massive shortcut to just, give, to just try and get creatures with understanding experience. So the thought is this addresses the meeting zombie problem. This, this explains why we have evolved with understanding experience because there's a massive, on this, on this hypothesis, there is a massive survival advantage to having understanding experience. Um, so just to be clear, this is, on, on this view, um, this is not a, we are now rejecting micro-reductionism, the dominant view in science and philosophy. We're not supposing that everything is determined by the laws of physics. So the, 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 the predictions associated with quantum mechanics, the Born rule predictions, the claim is these, these would be violated as we get complex organisms. 
Why is that? Because um, the thought is that the, 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 the predictions we associate with quantum mechanics are just what you get from uh, particles responding in, in, in that most basic rational response. Where you get systems that have some understanding of the world, they're going to start behaving a bit differently, and that's why it gives them a survival advantage. So as I say, I mean, micro-reductionism is pretty broadly believed, but I've had huge arguments on my podcast, Mind Chat, quick plug, with the physicist Sean Carroll on this. Um, and as Sean concedes in our debates, you know, the experiments on which we base physics, like particle physics, like, quant like uh, the Born rule predictions of quantum mechanics, involve very small numbers of particles, right? So the fact that, I mean, it just, you know, we've never tested a complex organism. It's, it would be very hard to do to see whether those, those laws of physics are exactly the same in a, in, in, a, in a complex organism. So I don't think we have very strong empirical reason at all to go for macro, micro-reductionism. I think it's something that's believed it sort of fits the zeitgeist of the moment. I think we've got very good reason to reject micro-reductionism, very good philosophical reason, because we need some, some evolutionary explanation of how understanding experience, this most important characteristic of human existence, evolved. And this theory, the motivation for it is that, is that it addresses that. You might be thinking that the view I've just been described sounds incredibly wacky, much more wacky than basic panpsychism. It's one thing to say con particles are conscious, another thing to say they're behaving rationally in some sense, that rationality is built into the universe. And I think people, people are happy to entertain wacky hypotheses if they think there's hard data supporting them. You know, we're happy with, to think time slows down when you travel fast or the weirdness in quantum mechanics if there's hard data. But if it's just some kind of philosophical argument, people think, even if I don't know what's gone wrong with the argument, you might think, I'm, I'm going to need hard data if you're going to want me to entertain this weird view. But I want to say this view I've just defended was defended on the basis of hard data, namely the reality of understanding experience. That is, that is hard data. It's something, it's not, it's, not a, it's not a data we get from experiments, but the reality of one's understanding experience is something I would say we know we know with certainty just through attending to our own experience. So it is hard data. And this leads me to the point I'd like to finish on, which is that the thing I guess I'm most passionate about is that the reality of consciousness is hard data, and as a scientific and philosophical community, we do not treat it as such. It's not empirical data in the sense of what we get out of experiments, but consciousness is something we know to be real, and so any overall theory of reality has to be able to account for it, or that theory is false. So it is hard data. Um, Whereas I think most people living at the moment, or most scientists and philosophers, and, uh, adopt some kind of scientific view. And people who think of themselves as pro-science adopt what, what, what we can call scientism, the view that the only, thing it's the only things it's rational to believe in are those entailed by the simplest theory able to account for the data of observation experiment. If you strictly follow this through, you will not believe in conscious experience. This is how ridiculous this is, because you know, someone like Daniel Dennett is wonderfully consistent on this. He knows that his own conscious experience is not the postulation of experimental science, so he doesn't believe in it. That's consistent. 
I'm at the other extreme. I think, well, obviously, conscious experience does exist, so we need to reject scientism. I think most people are in a sort of confused middle way where they think, of course, my experience exists, but they don't follow through the implications that that means there is a fundamental datum here over and above the data of observation experiments. And hence, what we really need to do is move to what I call expansive naturalism, roughly the view that the only things it's rational to believe in are those entailed by the simplest theory able to account both for the data of observation experiments, but also the reality of subjective experience, including understanding experience. That's hard data. Maybe there are other philosophical data. We could perhaps talk about that, but at the very least, the reality of conscious experience. So I think we, we really need to move to, we're in a confused methodology at the present moment, caused, I think, by an understandable being blown away by the success of science and technology and everything, but it's, it's, it's led us to a sort of confused approach to these matters. So I think, although it doesn't seem so likely at the moment, I think if you take a slightly broader historical perspective, just a little bit, the trajectory on consciousness has changed really quickly. For much of the latter half of the 20th century, it was just taboo. You couldn't talk about consciousness. You couldn't get a job being a scientist working on consciousness. Now, since the 90s, people say, you know, there's this serious hard problem. But I think still, people, you know, still too many people think, oh, just do more neuroscience. I think the next stage is to people to understand the philosophical underpinnings of this problem. Not least that this is not a publicly observable datum. And so in that sense, it is not a, scientific, a fully scientific question. Um, so I have faith that we will one day get to this expansive naturalism, this very different approach to our fundamental theorizing about reality. And I think, I think philosophers and scientists of the future will look back and think it is really bizarre that we didn't make... that. Philosophers and scientists in the late, late 20th, early 21st century didn't think more about this data in their fundamental theorizing. You know, there's something we know to be real with clo something close to certainty, and yet we just, theoretical physicists don't think about it when they're theorizing about reality. Um, so I think we will get to this point, and I think at that point, once we get into this very different methodological framework, views that sound totally wacky like this panagentialism in the, in the way we're approaching things now will start to sound much more plausible because we'll appreciate that they're endeavoring to account for hard, the hard data of certain aspects of our conscious experience. So I'm hopeful that at some point there is a pretty big revolution on the cards here, not so much a scientific revolution, but a, a worldview, a philosophical revolution that will ultimately lead us to a very different, perhaps slightly more positive way of thinking about the world around us. And I had lots more slides, but I'll leave it there, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on these matters. Thank you very much. Leave for now. Hmm? Leave for now. Live for now. That's... That's a very good attitude to life, I think, yeah. Absolutely.
All right, Philip, thank you for a fascinating talk. I think you've given everybody here enough to think about there for a couple of months at least, so, so well done. Uh, it was fascinating. Um, we've got a couple of questions from people on the live stream, and then we'll just pass the mic around like we did in the first session this morning. All right, so the first question is from somebody who didn't want to be named. Um, but is basic particle consciousness actually connected to another question? How do you explain the origin of life itself? Does life equal consciousness? What was the first part of the question? Just meaning, just music. What was the... Is basic particle consciousness actually connected to another question? How do you explain the origin of life itself? And does life equal consciousness? Yeah, that's a really good question. Like, I mean, there are, I guess, a couple of big mysteries remaining in science, consciousness, but the origin of life, you know, nat natural selection can only kick in once you've got self-replicating organisms and, a, and a, with some mechanism of inheritance and a competitive environment but where did life come from in the first place and this i guess darwin thought it could have just been accidental but the more we've learned about the, the basic what you need to get basic life off the ground it just looks a bit hard to swallow that it that it, it could be accidental this i mean this is not my area of expertise it's a fascinating mystery i wonder whether i wonder whether the theory i've just outlined uh would help with that. I'll have to think about that. I don't know. Um, so this theory is, you know, I mean, I guess lots of people think about the, the start of life, if they're just thinking everything's just reducible to basic physics, that's a real, that's a real challenge. Although the, the more I've talked to, like, um, chemists working on the origin of life, um, often also, who are not necessarily into this panpsychism stuff or whatever, also reject that micro-reductionist micro view and think, you know, in some sense, new causal principles kick in at higher levels of complexity, which is connected to what I've been defending here. Things behave a little bit differently once you get complex systems. I think something like that must be part of the story with accounting for the origins of life. But whether this theory would help with this, I'll have to sort of think about that was a nice, easy question to start off with. Um, so next is one from Charles Gordon Graham. Uh, he says, it was a fascinating talk. I'm really interested in panpsychism. I have two questions. When I was a teenager, I thought of everything as alive, alive or conscious to varying degrees, just like all materials are magnetic to some degree or other, just some much more strongly magnetic than others. The second point is the quantum physicist Erwin Schrodinger influenced by the Hindu Upanishads root of the arthromedial problem of consciousness. He argued that ultimately there's only one consciousness, and I wonder what comments you might have about these, these two points. Um, yeah, good, thank you. So the first, yeah, the next, well again, the connection between life and consciousness is, is not so clear, I suppose. It depends how you define life, I suppose, but if we're thinking of life as sort of complex behavior, biological functioning, then we might want to just, obviously particles are not alive in that sense. Maybe you want to define life in another way such that it's just synonymous with being conscious or something. But yeah, that's one way of thinking about panpsychism, that, that it's a basic, very simple consciousness is a basic feature that all things, all systems have to some extent, although through millions of years of evolution it becomes, has a much more distinctive character. On, um, yeah, a lot of these early quantum, mecha quantum mechanic physicists, pioneers of quantum mechanics had some kind of panpsychism or idealism. 
A lot of that's connected to whether consciousness collapses the wave function. I don't think that kind of view fits very well with panpsychism, actually, because if, if you want consciousness to collapse the wave function, um, you, you're going to have to have... I mean, on any collapse interpretation of quantum mechanics, you've got some circumstances where you don't have collapse, like before, when the cat's shut in the box, alive and dead at the same time, and then some circumstances where you, where you have collapse, where you open the box, and the cat's definitely alive or definitely dead. If consciousness is everywhere, you're not going to have that distinction. So I don't think it... So as I said, I go for the most boring version of quantum mechanics. As to whether there's only one subject at the fundamental level, I mean, there are some... I think John Hoffman on Nexus is sympathetic to some kind of view like that. The philosopher Miriel Bahari defends some kind of idealist view. Um, I think that would be a further step. It's not obvious to me why we need to think that there's... Um, some ultimately one conscious mind underlying all things. Maybe, I mean, I had a few slides. Maybe if you're independently motivated by certain mystical experiences, um, you know, I always emphasize there's no necessary connection with panpsychism and anything spiritual. A lot of the people defending it are total atheist secularists like David Chalmers, Luke Roloffs. But perhaps if you do have for independent reasons, certain spiritual convictions, maybe taking mystical experiences seriously, maybe a panpsychist view is more consonant with those. So maybe there could be some connection there. But that would be a further step, I think. Sorry, I have to give shorter answers. Hi. Hi. Uh, really interesting talk. I disagree almost entirely with all of it, but it doesn't Fantastic. mean I'd love to buy you a beer. Um, <laughs> You're not the I, first. I guess to pick just one question, I have many. I agree that we don't know what consciousness is. It's not obviously observable uh, for other people. I have my own subjective experience, as do you maybe, possibly? I hope so. I guess, though, I know from my experience, and indirectly through others, that physical changes have changes in my consciousness. If I'm awake or asleep, if I'm at the pub, had a few beers, let's assume I did drugs at some point, that might alter my consciousness. And so consciousness in that sense comes from at least the interaction of, of matter in, in some way. The matter changes the nature of consciousness. So if that is the case, why do we need the panpsychic consciousness? What does it contribute to this if it's only matter organizing itself? Yeah, good, thanks. So, look, the... I mean, the starting point, I think, for all theories of consciousness is what I call the scientific bit, that certain brain activity goes along with conscious experience, of course, and what kind of physical activity de determines which kind of consciousness. Everyone agrees on that. But that leaves, that's just neutral. This is why we really have to distinguish the scientific question from the philosophical question. That scientific data point that you referred to, everybody agrees on. The question is, what explains that? You have a dualist theory to explain it, you have a materialist theory to explain it, you have a panpsychist theory to explain it, and you have to explain those theories as philosophical theories. A lot of people seem to think materialism is the scientific one. No, it's a, it's a philosophical theory. You know, maybe it has a sciencey vibe or something, but that's not a good consideration. We just have to assess all these theories. I think the materialist one is incoherent. I think the dualist one is unnecessarily profligate. So we end up with the panpsychism one. But it's a, I mean, that's what I'm most passionate about. This is not a purely scientific question because consciousness is not publicly observable. So it's not, yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, a, it's an essentially a philosophical question. I think. <laughs> Did we have? Uh, 
thank you, Philip. Um, just quickly, if uh, we assume that um, particles, the simplest particles, have consciousness, and we have consciousness, but the middle stages, because if, if life happened at some point, right, and the particles existed before us, so there was a middle stage where there was um, some sort of uh, different, right, uh, stage. So that would lead me to assume that our consciousness is fundamentally different to this simplest particles consciousness. So it has to be, if a certain uh, alignment of those particles is required to make my consciousness, then it cannot be called the same consciousness as it originated from. So, and that makes me think that um, um, you, you, it, has to, it has to be different. So, um, you, you started your talk about the public observable and not observable things. And I think that our consciousness can be observed because you can already um, inject, I don't know, certain hormones and you would have a different consciousness. You would, you would be able to observe a different behavior, different, a completely, you, you can already scientifically sort of adjust the consciousness. Mm -hmm. And maybe you cannot do it with the simplest uh, particles, but that only makes my argument stronger that it's completely different. Uh, you can call it same, you can give it the same sort of name as consciousness, but that's not the same. So, mm. and then going back to, for example, the, your zombie experiment, if that is, uh, my answer to this would be that um, our consciousness was given to us as a survival mechanism because we already have those that um, sensory experience, things that have sensory experience but has, does not give any meaning to those sensory experience, like, I don't know, the simplest form of life would probably not have any meaning to it, but it would react in your zombie as a zombie, right? It would, it would, not, it would not plan long term. It would not, so our consciousness is simply a tool for us to survive better, to dominate the planet, to basically uh, be able to plan, mm -hmm. for example. Mm -hmm. So those are a few holes that I... Uh, Brilliant. Okay, there are a few, few... Yeah, really interesting. Thank you. A few different arguments there. Um, on the, so is it our, our consciousness completely different from this consciousness at the basic level that's postulated? Well, I would just say it's, it's, it's a, a much, 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 much more complex form of the same property. Like you might have... Think about shape. You know, all things with shape are... Are, have the same characteristic insofar as its shape, but you've got very simple shapes, you've got very complex shapes. So I think it's just, I think it's the same on that level, that it's just complex, very, very complex forms of the same thing. The second question, you seem to be saying we can observe consciousness. I don't think that's the case. We, we observe brain activity, and then we ask people, or, we, or sometimes in what's called the no-report paradigm in neuroscience, you look for external markers, like, you know, flickering of eyes or something. But... No, we, we don't observe someone's consciousness. We, 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 we ask them or what the nature of their consciousness. We observe their brain, and then we, put, we have a theory. Okay, and then 
Once you've got the theory, then you can say, oh, there's that brain activity, there's that consciousness. But that's only once you've got the theory. Everybody agrees on that. It's like the question here, the same question. Everybody agrees, materialist, dualist, panpsychist, the brain activity is correlated with consciousness, and we have some understanding of that. That's the scientific question. But that is just leaves open the philosophical question of why, why brain activity. And, and you just look at the different philosophical options. So your final question on response to the, the meanings on... Yeah, so look, I think maybe I should have put it this way. There are two different notions of understanding. There's a behavioral notion of understanding. Like, like take the, the Deep Blue, the computer software that beat the chess grandmaster. Does Deep Blue understand the rules of chess? Well, in a behavioral sense, it does. You know, it can play very well. But I would say in the, in the sense of experience understanding, it doesn't consciously grasp the rules of chess. It doesn't consciously appreciate any strategies. So we have this behavioral notion, like passing the Turing test. Uh, and this So once we distinguish those two ideas, then the question, yeah, there's no mystery about why natural selection gives us, uh, gives us the behavioral notion of understanding, and I think that's what you were talking about. I think maybe you're just conflating these two things and not properly distinguish, which is, which is really common that we don't properly distinguish these two things. We just sort of, and it's a subtle notion, isn't it? But there's no mystery about how na why natural selection gives us behavioral understanding. That's good for survival. But that's a different question from why we have understanding experience. Why aren't we meaning zombies that, that behave in all the ways we do and so survive just as well, but totally lack understanding experience. And so I, I don't think you, you've given us a, a sad, I, I don't think the standard evolutionary explanation, it can explain understanding, uh, behavioral understanding, but not conscious understanding. That's the, but anyway, it's a huge debate, so. Yeah, absolutely. These connect to some pretty fundamental questions, I think. Um, so just one more before we finish up. Um, is there anybody in the room that wants to ask before I ask one from the live stream? One here, yep. Hello. Um, I've been watching a lot of um, the cognitive science, John Viverky, and he talks about um, how, do you, how do you understand human experience is not for the subjective and the objective, it's more transjective. So like it's more mutually disclosing, so the environment and the individual is sort of mutually disclosing. And um, I'm just trying to figure out if panpsychism is congruent with that argument. Mm. Um, and if you had any thoughts on that, please. That's very interesting, yeah. I'm not super familiar with this, but I mean, I know the um, general approach. So is it, I, mean, I guess I tend to be, I tend to be myself more closer to the materialist and thinking, you know, my consciousness is just in my head. Um, which is, I guess, what this view is. It's more kind of the interactions. Um, but I suppose you could have uh, either a materialist or a panpsychist version of this consciousness emerges from interactions view. And I, w I would give the same arguments against the materialist version of that. As long as, you, as long as ultimately your story of reality is physics, I don't think you can get consciousness out. Whether you think consciousness is in the head or whether it's in the interactions doesn't matter. Whereas I think a panpsychist version of that view might fly. So in a way, these are, I think, different questions that um, the debates I've been talking about are neutral on. But, but it's also a very interesting question. I think I'd be inclined myself 
There could be other panpsychists who'd adopt the view you're talking about, and maybe I should look into it more. I think I'd be inclined to the more old-school view that it's in the head, but it's not something I've looked into a lot, and it might be... What was the name of the person, sorry? John? John Right, right, okay. I'll check it out. Thank you. We are. Panpsychism gives us, uh, in a sense, a much deeper connection with the reality around us. Okay.